say like, okay, so why do you, why do you wear a sword when you're doing the, this is called Mighty, by the way, these, these few weeks every year is called Mighty, but um, why do you wear a sword during Mighty? And, and the answer is because people frown on it when I wear it on Sunday morning. And so I would wear it all the time if I thought I could get away with it. Um, I strongly encourage you, if you're still alive when I'm dead, wear a blade to my funeral. Um, all right, so let's pray and, uh, and jump into this conversation, and then I'll very quickly turn you back to your tables. Father, thank you so much that you have called us. Um, God, by, um, by making us male, you have called us to be men. Um, by um, sending your son to live and die and um, to be resurrected, you have given us the opportunity to live as free men. Um, by sending the power of your spirit, by sending your spirit to live in us and to abide with us, you have called us and given us the opportunity to live as godly men because of the changes that you have wrought within us, citizens of your kingdom, salt and light, uh, that we would live a life worthy of the calling with which we have been called is our prayer. So, Father, I pray that you would help this time to help us do that. And uh, we pray all of this humbly and, uh, I guess, a little urgently in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so let me talk about something, a couple of things real quick. One is, here's the main, some of the main reasons why I want to get the men together uh, every year for a few weeks, and that is the danger of specialization. There you go, there's, there's seats right there. You go. Yeah, you can eat there, it's okay. Um, specialization is, um, that's one of the reasons that I want to do this. So we, as more and more, as we become a culture of specialization, hey guys, um, so if you, if you got a seat, raise your hand, let them know you got an empty one somewhere, jump in there. Um, and, uh, um, so here's the deal. The problem is it's okay to specialize. It's okay to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? When you give a task to somebody else, delegate. delegate certain things to certain people. But there are certain things that you cannot delegate. It's not, it's not okay. It's not acceptable to delegate because by definition, delegating something communicates something. And so let me, let me give you an example. So um, if you're someone who, if, if you're a, like Bobby Hicks is a small engine guy, like he knows how to work with small engines. And so when my chainsaw doesn't work, which is most of the time, um, it goes to Bobby. Uh, they even went out of their way and bought me a nice chainsaw, I think, because Bobby was tired of fixing my crappy ones. But, um, and I still managed somehow to make it stop working recently. So, um, but, like, that's something he's good at. But my kids know when my, chain, when my chainsaw breaks or if my lawnmower breaks, Bobby's going to have to help me with it because I have no passion for small engine repair. Like, just, just nothing. I, I bring in a specialist to take care of that. Um, I bring in someone who's, who knows what they're doing to fix that. And so far, he's batting a thousand with my uh, broken stuff. But so, so that's an example. It's okay, but it's okay to me that my kids don't think I'm, that's something I'm passionate about, that that's not something I'm, that I care all that much about, all that kind of stuff. Come on, Terrence. Find a seat. Somebody got us here. Um, so here's what, here's what we want to do. Part of meeting with the men is to make sure that you guys realize that, that leading your family spiritually is not something, gotta need to be at one of these. Or we can make a new table if, if you get too full. If a table gets too full, we can create that other table. But um, uh, so that's one of the things that we, that leading your family spiritually, when the men, when the husband, when the father, um, when he figures stuff out and, and is able to get on the, the, the right page with stuff, that begins to change everything else. So for example, I have seen women 
just knock themselves out trying to have a great marriage, fail. Uh, but I've almost never seen a man knock himself out to try to have a great marriage, fail. If a man works hard to have a great marriage, he just does. Now, it may be that you try too late and you've already lost the heart of the woman that you're with. I've seen that happen, but that's actually the, I'm telling you, that's my experience is that um, after all these years of counseling, if a man works hard to have a great marriage, he almost certainly has a great marriage. If you've been married more than three or four years, barring mental illness, you are married to the woman you have created um, by then. We'll restructure tables here in a second. We'll get all these guys in. Um, we got a lot of people that we actually are probably going to make a new table here in a second. So, so that's, that's something to know about. So it's important. There's certain things that your kids, uh-oh. <laughs> hey, guys, could we, could we wait to do that? Oh, you need to. Oh, you're grabbing them. Go for it. Go for it. Okay. <laughs> I thought they were like going to clean everything behind me while we were, which I appreciate, but at the same time, like... Might be slightly distracting. <laughs> um, so this is, this is a key part of us as godly men is recognizing that we have the power to create joyful homes. That, that somebody, when somebody asks your kids, did you grow up in a home where people cared about you and that kind of stuff, you are the ones, we are the ones deciding whether they answer yes to that. Were you loved and were you, were you sought after and did, you, did your parents rejoice in you? And, and so when you ask your kids, what's something that I'm passionate about? You know, you want to hear certain answers. There, there are, are certain right answers. You're passionate about God and his truth. You're passionate about my mom. You're passionate about us as kids. You're like, those are things you want to hear. Those are vital. And so we have the power to create that. And specialization means, because here's the deal, you can, you can become specialized. And, and as we become more and more specialized, what you don't want to do is treat the professional Christians as the, the Jesus specialists. That's, that's, not who, that's not the correct usage of us. Um, our job is to come alongside you and encourage you and help you develop these understandings so that you can then impart these to your kids to lead your wives, all that kind of stuff. So that's the goal is that. So, um, and, and so one of the mindsets that we're running into more and more often and that probably really irritate you um, and when you see this on the news um, is the someone ought to do something mindset, um, which is, you know, you see that like someone ought to do something. There's a problem and someone ought to do something and this is an issue and somebody ought to do something like we don't have health care for everybody. So, so we're, you know, a hundred thousand of us are going to go march because someone ought to do something. And, and that mindset of someone ought to do something rather than any of those people doing something becomes crippling on a culture. And that's where we very much so are. Someone ought to do something is the, the mantra. And so Many thousands of people will gather together and proclaim with signs that someone ought to do something. If the same 10 or 20 or 100,000 people would actually go do something, there's no telling what they could accomplish. But that's not popular or cool and doesn't look as good on your Facebook posts. Um, so the idea, though, that may annoy you in the media, but that may be your exact mindset at home. That may be your exact mindset in regards to relationships with other people. One of our goals, a stated straight-up goal, has been that we become a church that is powerfully hospitable. Not just that we tolerate people, but that we, we welcome them. And so hopefully as men, you're involved in somehow in that in our church, that somehow you are involved in making sure people know they are welcome to be here. That's our goal. We, we want that, especially on Sundays, that that's a huge deal. Kevin Carswell runs that group. If you don't have something else, if you can get here a little bit early, stop by at him at the welcome desk and say, put me somewhere, put me to work, help me work. That's one of our huge things. But honestly, that's one of our easy ones. 
Hospitality is way easier than discipleship. But one of our other foundational pillars is going to be discipleship. Um, one of, although at first it'll be his smallest part of his job, but one of Paul's new jobs is to help create a culture of discipleship. Now he's also got to figure out the entire operations stuff, which John has been running well, even though he's not had anything like the time or energy that he needs to put to that, which is part of why it's going to Paul, is so that Paul will be able to dig down into some of the minutia of that. Um, so it's going to take a while for him. Be patient. But that's okay because cultural change takes time anyway. There's no way to microwave this. There's no way to program this. There's no way to make discipleship happen in a church through a program or through money or whatever. It happens because we as men are modeling that and living that out or we're not. So I'm going to teach you the, these nights what discipleship is and some simple basics for discipling other people or being discipled on the hopes that you will take this as training and then after these few weeks, you will begin the, pro if you aren't already doing this, you will begin the process of disciple making. So here's what we need to do. Um, let's get that, we've got enough of kind of stragglers or tables that have a lot of people, two, four, six, eight. If you have more than eight at your table, one of you head back to that back one and let's, let's get that last table going. And then here's the question when you get there, everybody get there, two, four, six, eight. Okay, y'all are good. Everybody good? We got one more. If probably good for them to have one or two more if your table's pretty full. Thank you, sir. Um, he's armed. He's good. He'll be able to take care of him. Mark Anderson guy's a troublemaker, so probably good to send someone back there like that. Um, okay, so here's the discussion I want you to have at your table just for a few minutes. Um, I want you to discuss who it was who introduced you to pornography. Just like who was it the first person, the first person who shared with you or showed you or introduced you to pornography? Ready to go. Turn and, turn and talk to your tables about that. Okay. Let me, uh, let me interrupt you. So, um, so uh, how, many of you, how many of you were or introduced to pornography before age 10? Yeah, about that. Yeah, that was, I was five. And uh, I was five and some kids in the neighborhood, one of their, that one of their, had stolen one of their dad's Playboys. And, and here's what's amazing is it, it's something hardwires for you when you're young and you're actually whenever you're introduced, but you're more uh, able to deal with it the older you are. But the... Uh, so when you're young, it's, it's a big deal. I, like I literally remember the, the um, comic, the, the, you know, the inappropriate comic that was in the middle of the Playboy. In fact, that's what I remember is the comic. And here's what's wild. I remember it in detail, but I didn't get the joke until I was probably 15 or 16 years old. Like I didn't, I didn't understand why it was funny, but I remembered it well enough that when I finally learned about sex, all of a sudden it was like, oh, that's why that's funny. Like I didn't, I remembered it even though I didn't get it. Isn't that amazing? So that's a wild, um, a wild concept. So here's the, here's the reason I ask that. How much changed in you? How, how much were you affected by that introduction? I mean, when you think back to that, how many of you were introduced by a friend, that, like a neighborhood friend, okay? How many by a family member, okay? Um, what other sources are there? Just found it somewhere? Laying around somewhere? We were, we were following some older teenagers yeah. in fourth grade. 
out, we lived out in the country, and we we follow them, watch where their stash was. <laughs> Here you go. Okay, somebody's stash. For a lot of you, probably it was dad's stash. Um, you know, even if you grew up with a believing dad, he may have had a hidden stash, but. Nowadays, of course, it's, I mean, if you're, if you're probably under the age of 25, then, then the answer is probably going to be online somehow or somewhere, and it's coming at us. I don't, I don't know how, if I would have survived my teenage years if I'd had pornography that accessible as teenagers do now. Um, I just might have not ever gone to school. But that was a, uh, that's a, so that's a huge, I mean, obviously that's a big deal. But notice, so let me ask a different one. This, is a, this one's a little more positive, a little less scary to talk about, but um, what... What sport, or if not a sport, talent did you emphasize as a kid, um, and who taught that to you? Does that make sense? So if you're like, I'm a baseball guy, okay, who, who taught you to be a baseball guy? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a chess guy, okay, who taught you to be a chess guy? Like, what, whatever that is, where did you learn that? And make sure, so you got to watch out for when you're, when you're a table of, of like eight or ten people, I should have said this before, Make sure you're not dominating the conversation. Give other people a chance to talk. And here's, here's a thing, especially for the limited time we have. I'm going to recommend make sure you're talking about your story. So not, not somebody else's story or not a story you've heard. Men, men try to do that all the time. Like, well, I have a friend who, just, just your story was what, what, what just that amount of time we've got. Let's stick with, how, okay, how many of y'all's tables did that? You got off on somebody else's story about how they were introduced to pornography? Anybody? Oh, yeah, my friend got... And so, anyway, so your story and then... So, sports or skill or whatever, and, and who taught that to you? Ready? Go. All right. What, uh... How many, uh... So, how many of you was it Dad. Who, just, who helped you determine which sport. I think in my case, it was the opposite. My dad played baseball all through, all the way up through college, and he knew that how much time it took to play baseball, and so I swung at the first pitch I ever swung at at a baseball when I was about 25 years old. <laughs> and uh, it was, we had played, we were playing little, we were, the adults were playing the little league team. So, oh, we were gonna get killed. We were gonna get killed. Just, we, none of us could hit the pitch. I mean, he was a, the kid was a good pitcher. <laughs> So I used my talents and I talked to the kid into throwing me a softball pitch. Because that's, that's what I'm good at is like I manipulated him into throwing me a softball pitch, which I cranked that, but he could have thrown a thousand fastballs at me and I'd never hit. I can't hit fastballs on a video game. I'm never going to hit one. In a, um, but uh, so he put me in soccer, which he knew nothing about. I think partially because his dad was a baseball expert and he played baseball. So he intentionally picked a sport he knew nothing about so that I wouldn't be hearing about it from him all the time. But so, so what were some of the choices? Why did you, what did you choose or what sport were you a part of and, and why? Since I, did, I didn't see as many dad hands as I thought I would. Well, actually, not T-ball, my first T-ball team was in, we were in Central Florida. I was six. And um, at, at that time, I mean, uh, to have a woman coach was unheard of. Right. And we actually went undefeated. And I mean, you know, she just, you know, kicked every country boy behind <laughs> Got her photograph in the newspaper and everything, and that really set the stage for me to enjoy the success of baseball. Okay, good, good. Somebody else, what you got? What'd you pick and why? I think for me, it was, I think you see your dad, they like hunting, they like fishing, right? Whatever. I think you kind of steer towards what he likes to spend time with. Him. Absolutely. And you find out, hey, I'm pretty good at it, but 
So how many of you, here, here's a, this works in both ways. So you, the way you say, for example, tie a hook is the way that your dad taught you to tie a hook. Okay. So that's going to, things like that. So here's what's interesting. We went fishing periodically, but I realized when I, I didn't realize until I was an adult that my grandfather or my father tied all the hooks. And so the first time that I went out to go fishing with my son, I have no idea how to tie a hook. I mean, I had no clue. Like, I was like, I'm just tying like complicated bow knots now trying to hold this thing on. I had no idea what I was doing because I grew up my whole life with it already being done for me. And that's a, that's a huge mistake. I mean, so again, the idea of, of doing something for them instead of helping them learn to do it, that's the same thing that I, I want for you guys is that, is that you will begin developing the tactics, the habits, the strategies, the, all that type of stuff for how to begin to disciple people and to see. So discipleship is not some, I mean, it's magic, but it doesn't require a magician. It's, it's going to happen you were discipled. How many of you were discipled? How many of you would say it's a coach that's helped you decide which sport you fell in love with was a coach? Wow, not many of you. Not many of those either. Um, okay, so let me, I'm going to ask a separate question and come back to this. So here's the next question for you to answer. And it doesn't have to be a long answer, but um, here's, here's the question. Who is someone who with a, and, and it can be, it can be dad. We're going to focus on men if possible. If you don't have a man, it can be a woman if it needs to be, but Someone who, with a relatively small amount of investment, uh, at one season as a coach, or one year as a teacher, or even less than that, a time, amount of time as a neighbor, or maybe one conversation, changed, potentially changed the course of your life with just that much input. With just a season, a year, maybe even a conversation, who would that be? Talk about that among your table. Talk about that among your table first, and we'll come back to that. Very good. That's right. Um, okay, so I'd love to hear a couple of these examples, a couple examples of this, of just someone who had an impact through just a conversation or a, you know, a relatively short amount of time in your life. What you got? A few of you were going to, a few of you already raised your hand before we went to the group. So now you should, yeah, what you got, Ray? Uh huh. Uh, really demonstrated what it meant to gain respect through having good character. So okay. Those are experiences with other coaches where how they tried to gain respect with their players just by yelling at them and screaming at them. And so it's part of the fear to get them to do what they want. Right. Yeah. He, he really demonstrated, like, that's how you want to get respect from someone and how you want someone to work hard for you in those types of a lot of, a lot of men make that mistake. They think, they think behavioral capitulation is the same thing as respect. And um, if someone's capitulating to you because they feel like they're not willing to pay the price of not capitulating to you, that means they don't respect you. It's exactly the opposite. That's a, it's an exact opposite motivation. But sometimes men have a hard time telling the difference between behavioral modification and respect. Um, that's good. Okay, so you learned that as a middle schooler. That would have been nice, huh? I mean, that wasn't the only place, but that was definitely yeah. a situation where a man who I knew for a very short period of time really brought that to life in a setting where you don't always see 
Very cool. Somebody else? A couple more, or at least a few more. Yes, sir. Mine was a high school uh, guy who became a friend of mine. He was a very strong Christian who was uh, very popular in school, very good athlete, very good student. And he just he included me. And I, I mean, I, I, understand. I think most of us in high school, if we're honest, will say that we were insecure and immature. Mm-hmm. All of us, even those that fake it as, as, you know, that they've got it all together. And uh, I was certainly that way. And just being included in, he'd invite me to come to Youth for Christ. And that's where I ultimately turned around. I didn't come from a church going family. Wow. So there you have somebody who just by accepting and welcoming. That's a, um, I think he lives nearby. In fact, he's at a school. Any of you know who Kenneth Wooten is? thought somebody might know him. He, he's... He's a principal at a school somewhere near here, but I have a very similar, went to youth camp, very much so not a part of the in crowd of the youth camp, and Kenneth Wooten, who was not even a part of our youth group, he was the star quarterback for Nacogdoches High School, and he went to youth camp with us that year, and he and another guy, and I remember these distinctly, like I remember their names, I don't remember the names of a lot of the other kids, and, and uh, going and Kenneth got uh, asthma real bad, and I had to run about two miles back because I was not playing in the softball league because I was terrible, as I told you a minute ago. But, um, and so I had to run like two miles to our cabin to go get it, get his medicine and bring it back. And then they dominated and standing by the water fountain saying, man, you guys are so good. I can't believe you guys won that game. And to have Kenneth and Dan was the other high school boy's name turn to me and say, we, you mean we won that game? Like would not have won that game without you going and getting his medicine. So we, we won that. It was like, for like an eighth grade boy, that was, you know, type of, I mean, that was amazing, that experience of that moment. So yeah, just, just a few words, just being welcomed, being accepted is huge. That's something that we need to be discipling our high schoolers to be doing. Like they need to be learning that just a few minutes of acceptance can change a kid's life. Other examples? Yes, sir. Yeah. Good example. Did anybody, so I asked it in a neutral way. Did anybody tell a negative story? Did anybody say, here's where somebody in a short amount of time changed my life with just a conversation or a word or something like that, but it wasn't positive. Anybody have any of those? Do you use that example? There's, there's like, most of us probably have at least one of those too, right? where just something flippant that someone said, many of you as men have heard me tell the story of my dad saying, you must be the, my, your, your grandfather just said, you must be the laziest kid he's ever known. And a, just a flippant comment. And uh, my grandfather was a high school principal for like 40 years. So he knew lots of kids and I was the laziest uh, that he had ever known. And so 
But it's amazing how those things, positive and negatively, so negatively, I mean, our words as men, our words matter. Like, they impact people. They have a huge power behind them. They don't feel like it to us because we're just us. I mean, we, don't, we, we felt like we've been faking it since we were about 14. Like, we have no idea what we're doing. The thought that someone would entrust us with a family or a career, you're always looking around like, okay, there's, there's got to be a hidden camera for this whole thing. Like, somebody's going to go, <laughs> yeah, like we would have given you a family. What do you... You have no idea what you're doing. What are you thinking? We're not going to put you in leadership. You're clueless. But somebody's going to catch on to that. But that, that's, that's, that's been deeply and in, deep inside of a lot of us. But the thought that we would be responsible, that we would have to take responsibility for something, but that our words would matter positively and negatively. So realizing 20, 20 years later, I was crawling around in the crawl space in the house I was building, wiring my own house, at 11 o'clock at night in the middle of February, freezing, thinking, see, I'm not lazy. <laughs> 20 years later, I'm st- I was still wrestling through from that curse that it was just worked. dropped. Yeah, exactly. It worked. Um, by the way, the first time my dad heard me tell that story, I thought he was going to, I mean, he would just wept. Because, of course, he had no memory of saying it, and my grandfather would have had no memory of saying it. And I know perfectly well that they did not mean it. It was a, a momentary you know, you should have been up at eight working and here it is noon and you're just now getting up. Like, that's, that's not acceptable. But they were trained like most men on how to talk about those type of feelings, right? Like all of us were so well trained on that kind of stuff. But, or, or positively, um, one of my favorite examples, this isn't from my life, although I've got a few of them too, but um, Tim Kimmel, the uh, author, who's a great, if you're a, if you're, if you're a man who doesn't even like to read very much, one, I mean, learn to read. You gotta, you gotta grow up. You gotta, you have to start reading or listening to the insights from other people because you can't learn what you need to learn. You'll never be great at anything if you can't read or listen to other people. But um, uh, that, that, um, that's a separate issue. But Tim Kimmel's easy to read, even for men. Like I really recommend men because he speaks as a man to men very much so in his books. But he tells the story, which this one just gets me every time, of a coach. So Tim apparently grew up very poor and and he, wore, he had socks that were just destroyed, always wore socks that just were. And for some reason on PE, he got, they had to not wear, they had to take their shoes off for something. And all the kids harassed him because he had holes in both his socks, his toes sticking out and, and all that kind of stuff. And then at the, end of, at the end of PE, after he'd been teased the whole time, he's trying to put the shoes back on. And as Tim was about to put his shoes on, his coach walked up and was like, hey, I thought I'd show you something. He pulls his shoes off and both of his socks have big old holes in the toes. And the coach says, us agile guys are really hard on our socks, aren't we? <laughs> and Tim was like, it was years later before he realized that coach had gone, gotten a pair of scissors and cut the holes out of his, uh, toes out of his own socks. And he'd come back, like it, he just, for years, he just took him at his, like, yeah, us agile guys, we're hard on our socks. And, <laughs> and, and so just a, just a quick comment like that. Do any of you know, um, oh, dadgummit, I'm going to lose his name. African-American pastor in the north part of town. Thank you, Milton. Uh, Jerome, Jerome Milton. Thank you, Jerome Milton. Um, you know, Jerome went through the foster system over and over, m- multiple, multiple houses. And he, he tells a story of being in a house, he thinks, for two to three weeks. And he has no memory of their names, no memory of, any, of who they were. But he remembers distinctly a conversation that the man had with him, who he still credits as why he made it in life, as a single conversation with the man who accepted him like that. So... So here's here's what I want you to hear. That is discipleship. Um, 
when you are helping someone know something true or false, it may be good discipleship or bad discipleship. Discipleship is unavoidable. All discipleship is, is teaching someone to be like you. It's teaching someone to think like you or act like you or understand like you or do something that you do. And we all do it. We are all discipling people. For the sake of this church, here's how we're going to define discipleship. Discipleship is, uh, I have it written down as I want to say it exactly the way I want to say it. The intentional process of influencing someone to become more like you in a way or ways where you are more like Christ. That's what discipleship means. It's, and one of the magic words in there is intentional. We'll probably spend next, almost all of next week talking about intentional. So you are doing it right now accidentally. You have been doing it with your kids or your grandkids or your friends or other men around you all along, your coworkers, whatever. But many of us in the church and many of us as men do it unintentionally. Um, one of the reasons why I use swords for a lot of imagery is because of, I mean, we recognize that they're dangerous. Um, it's kind of funny, like you, you would be, you would be like uh, at a Wednesday night when I pulled a gun to talk about something, like everyone kind of gets that creepy feeling of a gun, but, but a lot of us, especially in East Texas, we feel pretty comfortable with guns. Um, but when I hand over a sword, especially a really sharp sword to somebody, it's, it's funny to watch them treat it like it's going to ex- bite them or explode or something. Like that's, I heard a liberal say, do that gun thing. That's what they talk about a gun. Like it's just going to do that gun thing. Like <laughs> anyway little living entity waiting for a chance to shoot you. But, the, uh, um, but that's kind of how they get treated when they're really sharp and that kind of stuff. We have to recognize that's, that's us. We are impacting the people around us with our words and our behaviors and our impacts. We are discipling people. What we want to start doing is doing it intentionally. And I want that to be so, um, I don't even know what the pandemic in our church, like it is everything in our church is connected to discipleship. It is, the, it is the foundation for every part of church growth. Um, part of what we're facing right now by needing 270 people to work in our children's ministry, but we only have about 220, is because we have grown through methods other than discipleship. We've grown as a church through, um, in, in, which is, I guess, great in some ways, but it's also troubling that we've grown and we have a lot of people coming who aren't disciples. They haven't learned how to do these things. They haven't learned how to invest. They haven't learned how to lead. They haven't learned how to teach. And they, then most importantly for men, they haven't learned how to risk looking foolish. Um, that's usually the hardest thing for most of us. So that's going to be our definition. When you ask who has spoken into me, um, who has had an impact? So I'm going to ask one more question and then I'll close out our time. Um, and that's this question. And it may be connected to the last one. That's fine. Um, and this one I do want us to focus positive if you can. Who taught you to think differently about yourself? Who taught you to think in a way to build a sense of confidence, um, a sense of capability, competence, um, whatever, intelligence? So it's a, a lot of us, we, we're missing that. We're still trying to prove something. But I want you to ask yourself that question. Who spoke something into you through word or deed that lets you know something important about yourself that has become, and typically those become stones in the, like a foundation. Those become core to us. Ready? Okay, so talk about that a little bit around your table. 
All right. I hate to interrupt you, but I need to. Um, so let me, let me close out our time. One, um, again, this is just another form of, of discipleship, of, of speaking into somebody through words or behavior. There's, um, before we're done, so during these you know, five or six weeks, I, I intend to literally just make sure every one of you knows if you were going to meet with somebody for a discipleship conversation, there's no excuse for why you couldn't do that. Some of you have been doing it for years, and hopefully we're going to get input from you so that we can all take notes. I recommend moving forward. You bring, if you're a laptop note taker, bring it. Take notes on it. If you like to take notes on paper, whatever, bring your Bibles. Where we sit over here and there's not going to be screens. I want you to be here and take notes because I want us to be a disciple-making church. Our growth, as we're growing, especially the next transition of growth, we've got to be growing in depth and strength, not just width. Um, and so that's something that, that is vital for the next phase of our church. And we largely determine that. 50, 50 men who are prepared to live this out, even if they're at first on the receiving end of being discipled, not disciple-making, will, will do that. I mean, that would go far and away. That would, that would handle it. Um, and a handful, I, there are a handful of men in our church who are already well-established disciple-makers. And then many of them aren't here tonight, which... It's probably fine. They know what they're doing, and they've got that solid. But, but I want to. I'd love for them to be here to offer input. But, um, I, I, like for me, a huge one. So my dad, being a forestry professor, when my dad talked about other men, he talked about them in terms of chainsaws, like whether he would trust them with one, whether he would trust them to hold one or run one. I mean, he would literally be like, "I wouldn't trust that guy to hold a chainsaw," like. Or, or I certainly wouldn't, or, or I wouldn't trust that guy to run a chainsaw, or I wouldn't trust that guy with my chainsaw. I mean, that, literally that terminology was very much so part of his language. There was a few people who said I wouldn't trust that guy to hold a bucket, and that was bad. Like, <laughs> you weren't even in the chainsaw league at this, but you were just, at, you were at the stage of I wouldn't trust you to hold a bucket. But, uh, um, but so it meant a lot in my family. It was very clear. There's a very clear, very, like, there weren't a lot, there weren't, I was the only boy, so I was the only one who got this, but I knew this growing up very clearly was at some age, what I did was stack firewood. I mean, I walked with dad to and from, and I helped him stack firewood. And then there came a day when I was pushing the wheelbarrow, when I would stack it in the wheelbarrow and push the wheelbarrow, which, as you've probably heard me say before, is I am, I am violently, philosophically opposed to two-wheel wheelbarrows for young people. Listen, for, if you're an adult, that's fine. But for young people, they need a single wheel wheelbarrow. They need to fight a wheelbarrow all the way to the ground with a full load of something. <laughs> that is the ultimate test of a, a young man's character is can, can he then put the wood back? Listen, it, I will tell you, I think one of the things we're, I'm struggling with, I talked to a mops group at Green Acres this morning, and their constant questions about how do I protect my children was, was I mean, I'm like, that's healthy, I get that, but I, I'm just imagining... Are your husbands, though, teaching your children to push through things? Because especially boys, girls too, but especially boys need both. I mean, they need to know, you know, yes, you fell down, you scraped your knee. It's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to be whatever. But it's not okay to stop. It's not okay for us to quit. The whole world isn't going to stop for you because you're... And so if, you're, if you've ever fought a, a wheelbarrow going all the way down to the ground, all the way down, and have it spill an entire load that you've then got to pick back up one stick at a time, plus learning how to like 
that your eyes won't be bigger than your muscles, so to speak. They're like, I'm sure I can carry a wheelbarrow load stacked this high with, and no, you can't. But you, you know, letting a kid learn that on their own after a few tries, there's so many different lessons. So anyway, stacking, then there's hauling. Then there came a point when it was splitting. I was old enough now split firewood. Again, talk about character development, right? That was, my dad was like, he would tell all of his friends that he was so proud of him because I, I, I split firewood like lightning. I never struck twice in the same place. That was my, <laughs> if those of you who have split firewood. <laughs> so he, he and my grandfather, that was amazing to me, one of those great things. Like splitting firewood is a skill. It is not a strength thing. No matter how strong you are, it matters whether you know what you're doing. And that's why old guys can, if, you got, if you're old, you have practice. You can always impress the young guys by the young men I used to disciple, like college age, I would always take about to split firewood because I knew they were going to be awful at it. And, and they were going to be beating, essentially beating a, a log to death, like trying to beat it into two pieces or just a few good, well-placed shots. And then my grandfather was one of those guys. You probably had a grandfather like that who could, his third whack and it fell into four equal-sized pieces, <laughs> like every time. I also now know he was intentionally choosing wood for himself and choosing wood for me, like... <laughs> Like, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Um, but that was a big deal the day the dad handed me the axe or the splitting mall. And that's a much different from stacking, wheel, stacking or hauling a wheelbarrow. That's a big deal. But in my family, the day that my dad said, all right, I'm going to show you today, you're going to be the one using the chainsaw. That was, the way, that, my, that was my dad's way of telling me in his mind I was a man and a trustworthy one. And so that made a big deal to me to know that my father saw me as a man and he trusted me. Because again, like I said, he used that terminology. For you, maybe it was the 410, the, 12, the 20 gauge and the 12 gauge. Um, in my family, the, or, or driving the boat or running the tractor or whatever those were. We need those and there's not a lot of them left. And so we have to be intentionally creating that. And here's what's wild. As grown men, we still need to hear them from one another. Ginger's brother, who I had to spend a lot of time speaking into him, unintentionally spoke into me when Ginger and I were dating. When I spoke for Sunday school, I, I guest spoke in his Sunday school class years, I mean, a long time ago. And, and I taught the Sunday school class. And afterwards, he came up and was like, you just, you, he goes, I know I don't know you that well. I'm glad you're dating my sister, but I just thought I'd tell you, if you're not teaching, you're probably in sin. You, you are a teacher and you need to be teaching. And if you're not teaching, you're probably sinning to not do it. And this was a man only two or three years older than me. But, but boy, that sticks. We, get, we still have that power with one another, and we all need that. We don't ever give in on that. So I want to encourage you. So our key passage for discipleship is Matthew 10, 25. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. That's what we're trying to do. And so again, I want by the time we're done in five or six more weeks for you guys to be able to walk out of here with whatever it is you need so, it's so that you would not have an excuse that you could say, I mean, I can, I can take over and help with this group. But so you will know, I don't see in this church, I don't see children's ministry as child care. I don't see it as babysitting. What it is is discipleship. And so I want you to see, I want us all to see it that way. This is the core of the building of the church is discipling. And we want to disciple them as starting as early as possible. Um, and so working with the youth and working with one another as discipleship, we've, we've, this has got to be the case. I want there to be a day when you wouldn't even consider nominating somebody for the leadership board who was not known among our church as a disciple maker, as someone who makes disciples, who meets with people, who intentionally influences them to follow them as they follow Christ. And that you would say like, well, of course we can't nominate that guy. That guy doesn't do that. 
We can't nominate that woman. She doesn't do that. And I know a lot of you already do. And you may not even know you do. That was the, I'm gonna close on that. You may already be doing this. I just want you to start doing it and let's start doing it intentionally. Um, we have men come to us regularly. Hey, do you know somebody who would be willing to meet with me and disciple me? And I don't always know who to tell them. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But it is, I'm telling you, you will, you will never, I believe you will not regret doing it. And we've got to have it as part of our church. So let me pray over us and then we'll be done. Thank you men for being here. Please come back next time. Um, you don't have to sign up, so it's okay to bring friends and stuff. Unlike the ladies, they're, they, uh, they have people scattered all over, outdoors, everything tonight. So um, anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word. God, I pray that you would help us to be men who are disciples of yours, that you are our rabbi, our teacher, our Lord, our master, our guide. Um, Father, that you define us through the power of your son. Thank you that you give us that opportunity and that we can take what you have taught us and impart it to other faithful people as well. And I pray that we would do that because you've called us to it and that that would be the core and foundation of our church. It would be the core and foundation of our leadership board. It would be the core and foundation of our deacons. It would be the core and foundation of everything we do here would be just making disciples for your kingdom who then will multiply and duplicate themselves many times over so that in heaven someday there will be people who have been discipled by those we discipled dozens of generations. And we'll get to enjoy the fruit of that in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, guys.